I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. After the Ebola outbreak of 2014, Beth Cameron was tapped to head a new White House office, whose duties included planning for the next global health crisis. But in 2018, then-White House National Security Advisor John Bolton shut the office down as part of a reorganization of the National Security Council. Cameron had already left the government at that point, but she argues that the axing of her old office was a critical inflection point that slowed the U.S. government's response to the spread of COVID-19. We'll talk to Cameron, now the Vice President for Global Biological Policy at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, about what steps could have been taken had the White House office remained in place. And we'll talk to our colleague Andrew Romano about a startling new Yahoo News YouGov poll showing the strange attraction of bizarre conspiracy theories on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, no uh, shortage of things to talk about this week. And uh, to do that, we're joined by our colleague, Yahoo National Political Correspondent, Andrew Romano. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So you've got a absolutely fascinating piece up today on the Yahoo website, Andrew, about a new poll about conspiracy theories and COVID-19. Tell us what you found. Yeah, this is a new Yahoo News YouGov poll. We've been doing these every week or two weeks or so throughout the spring since the sort of pandemic took hold looking at views on coronavirus. Um, This week, we focused on conspiracies, misinformation, how much people know, what people think they know that maybe they don't actually uh, know so accurately. And what we found is that, you know, misinformation and conspiracy theories have really taken root, especially on the sort of right side of American politics, that is the conservative side of American politics. One of the most striking examples of this was that we found that 44% of Republicans believe that Bill Gates, the Microsoft founder and global health philanthropist, is plotting to use a mass COVID-19 vaccination campaign as a pretext to implant microchips in billions of people and monitor their movements. Wait, 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 wait. Stop it. Stop a second, Andrew. That that I mean, that is literally tinfoil stuff. Wait, you wait. You guys are you guys telling me it's not true? <laughs> I mean, Mike, I'm here to tell you it's not true. That has been I mean, some people may have not even heard that before, but it has sort of festered on the Internet and spread around. This has been widely debunked. It is, you know, sort of taken root online, promulgated by sort of anti anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists. 
But there is no basis in fact, I just want to make that clear to people, that Bill Gates is not planning to microchip and track the world's population Who, through who's uh, been, vaccination. Who's been promoting this? It's a good question. You know, beyond the sort of anti-vax activist community, there's been kind of some overlap with the kookier parts of, you know, I, I, the conservative movement, I guess, if you could call it that. It's the kind of thing, you know, where you see in these anti-lockdown protests that have popped up, you see this weird overlap between kind of conservative movement, conservatives, people who are in the Tea Party and anti-vaxxers. And it's this sort of distrust of and suspicion of authority. And that's, I think, where the sort of psychological overlap is between those two groups. But to be clear, this is not a conspiracy theory that's being propagated by President Trump, right? This has not come out of the White House at all. Yeah, no, I just want to say, I mean, I think this is a kind of an interesting and important point. President Trump has said a lot of untrue things about the coronavirus. He's not said this. Fox News has not said this. And we actually broke down in the poll, not just by Republicans, but by media habits and 2016 vote. And we found that even more, so it was 44% of Republicans, 50% of people who name Fox News as their primary television news source believe the Bill Gates, disproven Bill Gates conspiracy theory. And 44% of voters who cast ballots for, ballots for Trump in 2016 do as well. So it is sort of widespread on the right. Only a quarter of all of those groups recognize this as false. If you flip the, flip the side, and look at Democrats, Hillary Clinton voters, MSNBC viewers, the number who say it's true is just 15% or 12%, much, much lower. So for some reason, it's really taken hold there, even though it's not showing up on Fox News and, well, and President Trump hasn't talking about, yeah. talked about it. Well, Andrew, I mean, you have followed uh, public opinion on conspiracy theories and these kinds of issues. So do you have some thoughts as to why people on the right these days seem to be more susceptible to these kinds of conspiracy theories? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I have some loose thoughts. And this is thing, something that, that people have studied. And I know journalists are kind of hesitant to say one side is worse than the other. In this case, it does seem like, at least around these coronavirus conspiracy theories, in our poll, Republicans, conservatives were much more inclined to believe things that were untrue. Now, that's not to say that Democrats are completely exempt here. For example, we asked if there had been a surge in coronavirus-related deaths in states that were early to reopen, like Florida, Georgia, and Texas. Now, there's some noise in the data in terms of cases, whether they're going down or holding steady, but there's been no surge in deaths. In at least two of those states, deaths have gone down. In one, they might be even. So that, that is a factual misconception that, that liberals have. Most of them said that there had been a surge in deaths in those states. That said, almost everything we asked about any outlandish conspiracy theory, the numbers were higher among Republicans. And I guess one reason why that might be is you have a kind of longstanding sort of philosophy message in conservative circles going back to, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, the rise of Goldwater, that, you know, government can't be trusted, that authorities can't be trusted, and then it sort of transforms into expertise can't be trusted. So if the CDC is telling you something, if doctors are telling you something, but a partisan figure is telling you the opposite, you're going to believe the partisan figure because faith in those authorities has, has been so undermined. So, Andrew, I, I was reading your, your story on the Yahoo website about this. And when you 
got to the conspiracy theory you linked to the um, Snopes.com debunking of the claim about Gates and uh, and my I, I click through, but they they do point out that the Gates Foundation did in December 2019 fund a study that and I'm quoting here developed dissolvable micro needles that deliver patterns of near infrared light emitting micro particles to the skin that can, when exposed to certain frequencies of light, identify the immunization status of infants. So there was a sort of little grain of something to this, which, you know, clearly would have applicability to the COVID-19 crisis. And just one more beat, not to be overly contrarian here, in, in all... Oh, you would never do that, <laughs> Heaven forfend. Um, but, um, you know, with all the talk of contact tracing that needs to be done by the government, it does raise a lot of questions about the volume of information about who we talk to and where we've been that is going to be collected by governmental authorities during this pandemic. But that has nothing to, that has nothing to do with vaccines. I mean, that's a totally separate issue. No, no, but no. But I'm, I'm saying the larger issue of the government it, that in ways that a lot of people might find creepy, collecting information about where we've been and who we've been in touch with is not a totally illegitimate concern here, is it? No, no. There's, I mean, well, first of all, in terms of the study that you mentioned, yeah. and the broader point, there's, there's always a grain of some sort of fact or factoid in a conspiracy theory, right? You need to have something to latch onto, but there's no connection between studying a technology like the one you mentioned, which would be in its infancy and years away from implementation, if it could ever be implemented, which I seriously doubt, given how you know concerned you know even reasonable and non-conspiracy-minded people would be about something like that, and delivering it in a vaccine, you know, by the end of this year or early next year, there is just no evidence whatsoever that Gates is pursuing that. He has been pursuing vaccines and supporting them in the developing world with, you know, hundreds of millions of his own dollars in order to, you know, support global health. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's the leap that is made from a factoid like that, a grain of, of truth and transforming it into an elaborate and nefarious narrative that defines, you know, the conspiracy, the entire you know, practice of conspiracy theories. So, Andrew, I've got one point I want to make and then and then a question for you. The point is that, you know, this uh, tendency toward just kind of like disregarding the truth, finding your own facts, buying into conspiracy theories potentially really does have significant health consequences, right? Because if, you know, the polling suggests that there are, and previous polls that we've done, that there are, you know, pluralities of, of conservatives who say they just won't get the vaccine at all. And if tens of millions of Americans don't get the vaccine, that potentially affects all of us, right? So that's my point. Well, that's exactly but, right. And I think that, you know, while the fact, the, the sort of the data point about Bill Gates and this crazy conspiracy theory is sort of juicy and, and clicky. The, the, the larger point is that this, this sort of choose your own reality effect is distorting perceptions of nearly every aspect of the pandemic. And that's from reopening to vaccination to the official death toll. And then that can have real life consequences. And, and I think the Gates thing is a perfect example. It might seem silly on the surface, 
But if large portions of the public believe that Gates' intent is nefarious, and if they go on to convince themselves that any coronavirus vaccine will be dangerous, then they may refuse to get vaccinated. The more people who refuse to get vaccinated, the harder it becomes to end the pandemic. And we're already seeing those numbers go up. This is the second time we've asked the question, if and when there is a vaccine, will you get it yourself? And what we found was that about 50% of Americans now say they intend to get vaccinated. That's actually surprisingly low because you have somewhere around 83% of Americans saying they consider childhood vaccines either somewhat or very safe. And that's a cross well, that's party what, And then that's secondly, what. about a quarter of them say they won't. Uh, and another 27%, this is the, the other 50%, say they're not sure. That's a gain, that's a decline in the number of yes percentage, yes responses since the beginning of May, and a, a gain in the number of no responses. So it's actually moving in the wrong direction. But that's what I wanted to ask you about. It's kind of an oddity in the poll, a, a seeming contradiction, you know, that there is little partisan disagreement over the, the safety of a vaccine or whether it's safe to fast track it, Operation Warp Speed, as the administration calls its vaccine initiative. Yet this uh, substantial divide between Clinton voters and Trump voters over whether they will actually get vaccinated. So how do you square those two things? Well, I mean, I think it's always every vaccine has some risk involved, some, you know, you get the flu vaccine and you start to feel a little sick. Now, people have vast disagreements about what those risks are, and that's the entire basis of the anti-vax movement. But I think it's reasonable for people to say, like they say in this poll, and again, this is a cross-party line, that you know, about three-quarters of Americans are at least somewhat concerned about this fast-tracking process and what that means for the safety of the vaccine. I would probably answer the question that way myself. The fastest we've ever developed a vaccine is four years. We're going to have one potentially if everything goes the way, you know, the Trump administration hopes and some of these early studies suggest within 12 to 18 months, that's just that really is warp speed. So I might answer that question and say, you know, I have I'm somewhat concerned about that. But I would also say I am going if the CDC, if this has gone through the regulatory process, if, it, if scientists have studied it and deemed it safe, I'm going to get that vaccine because that's the part that I believe I should play in combating this pandemic. Now, Democrats said that in our poll, Republicans were much more skeptical. And it's just a difference of opinion on how much they're going to trust that expertise, those scientists and that authority on a question about, you know, a vaccine like this. Andrew, this is, of course, uh, playing out amid this the growing debate about whether to ease restrictions and reopen businesses or maintain many of these restrictions until the virus numbers go down even more. Where is the public on this right now? Yeah. So we have asked these questions in every single poll that we've done. One of the sort of major questions that we ask is whether stay-at-home orders are the only way to stop the spread of COVID-19 or whether, quote, the cure is worse than the disease, which is something that Trump has said repeatedly that sort of the economic effects at a certain point become worse, you know, than the coronavirus itself. So we have had consistently majorities of Americans, both Democratic and Republicans, saying the former, that is, that stay-at-home orders are the only way to stop the spread of COVID-19, somewhere up around 70% in all of our polls. Now, for the first time in this poll, a majority of Republicans say the cure is worse. Among Trump voters and Fox News viewers, that number skyrockets. 59% among Trump voters, 66% among Fox News viewers. So that shows 
how opinion is dividing on this. This was something that was a consensus for a lot of the past two months. Now, Republicans may have had less support for it a little bit, but now you've got a majority of, of people on the right saying that the cure is worse than the disease, that we need to reopen, that we need to end lockdown. And part of that is valid. It reflects changing pandemic, case counts that are going down, a response, you know, we are testing more. It reflects more than two months of people being locked up in their homes, not able to get out, not able to go back, go to work. Uh, and as time goes on, one can see scenarios where the numbers of people agreeing that the cure can be worse than the disease could well grow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we asked about, we asked a sort of interesting hypothetical. What's worse, 200,000 more elderly Americans dying of COVID-19 over the next year or 30 million Americans being unemployed for the next year? What's the answer? 55 to 45%, they'd say it's worse to have 200,000 more elderly Americans dying of COVID-19. But opinion is sort of moving. And, you know, it, it, it seems almost sort of brutal to phrase it that way, but it is part of the conversation. How much health risk are we willing to shoulder in order to mitigate the destructive effect this is having on our economy? And, you know, Republicans and Democrats are increasingly not seeing eye to eye on that. So, Andrew, one other area of partisan divide during this pandemic that we've seen continually has been this question of whether people should take hydroxychloroquine, which the president is now taking. Uh, I asked you about that this week because a, a new study, the first really major study of hydroxychloroquine as a, as a therapy has just come out, 96,000 people with coronavirus on six different continents, and it shows that people who've taken hydroxychloroquine uh, have a significant higher risk of, of death. So uh, what did the poll show about that. Yeah, uh, the polls showed that a majority of Fox News viewers, 53%, along with nearly half of Trump voters, 49%, and Republicans, 45%, think hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment against COVID-19. Um, that's even after study after study has not proved that to be true. It is a little bit before this major study that you just mentioned that was not out while our poll mm -hmm. uh, was ongoing. But I think opinion was probably influenced by the fact that Trump announced on Monday before our poll went into the field uh, that he had been taking it for a couple of weeks. What about, um, are, are there any areas of broad consensus in the poll? I mean, that would be the man bites dog story. Maybe that would be the news if they're actually something that people agree on in this country. Well, look, I mean, this is the thing. I, I've been doing these polls now for a couple months, and there has been broad consensus. You know, it, I think the media has kind of hyped up the protests Obviously, we sort of gravitate towards conflict and novelty. But, you know, most Americans have been telling pollsters that, you know, they're doing social distancing, that they think lockdown is the right way to combat the pandemic. So, you know, I think the more striking thing is I, I wanted to write that paragraph in the story, and I found it much harder than when I was writing up previous polls. So, you know, we found, for example, that most Democrats and Republicans and independents say that they will continue to practice social distancing even after official restrictions are lifted. Most also characterize the CDC's recommendation that everyone wear a cloth mask or their face covering in public places as about right in terms of strictness. But honestly, that was about it. So I think people are on board with they've got to take personal responsibility somewhat. They've got to stay six feet away from other people. They should probably wear a mask in the grocery store. Beyond that, uh, we're just seeing a sort of widening gap. Andrew, in the uh, presidential race, 
Are you seeing any meaningful movement one way or the other in people's views on Trump, in people's views on Biden, in the head-to-heads, in the battlegrounds? Uh, it's, it seems to me that the polling is sort of been static over the last few weeks, but you watch it a lot more closely than I do. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, the, the campaign has been in a state of suspended animation, and so have the numbers. I, I mean, they just haven't really budged. There's been no events that are going to move them. I mean, I think one thing that's striking as you watch the sort of progression in these polls is that public opinion about Trump's handling of coronavirus seems to have cemented a negative territory for him. That is, we found, I believe it was 40% approved and 53% disapproved. There was a point fairly early on where that split was, was pretty even, and that is not the case. I think the question is, what impact, impact is that going to have on politics? Because so far it hasn't really, given that the campaign hasn't been ongoing, it hasn't really affected the numbers. You've seen essentially Joe Biden with a four or five, six percent lead nationally and a lead in some of these key swing states. Well, I, you know, what I think the big question is, is um, Trump's approval ratings on handling of the economy, because the question is going to be, look, the economy is not going to come. <laughs> roaring back, I don't think, the way he has predicted it it will. But the big question is the extent to which voters blame Trump for the economy as a, you know, opposed to saying, you know, this was a exogenous factors here that he could not have prevented himself because it's a it's a pandemic. And similarly, whether they trust Biden to bring back the economy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's some warning signs for Trump in the polling about that. You know, we for example, asked about, we sort of tested without attributing it to Trump, this, this notion that this is something not, nobody could have predicted or nobody ever predicted. And the public is not buying that. We've asked over and over again, if how much responsibility does Trump bear for, you know, the sort of scale of the pandemic in the United States? And you get something like 65% of people saying things could have been better to one degree or another if he had reacted differently. So I do think the public is attributing some blame for the scope of this pandemic to Trump and that the economic effects, therefore, will sort of you know, accrue to him as well, though we'll have to watch it. I mean, I have long thought that some people were talking early on about like Biden needing to get out there and compete with Trump and have a bigger megaphone. I think in a way, Biden is uniquely immune to that because people feel like they know him. Uh, He's a familiar figure and he's kind of become this almost default option. People who are, you know, who don't like either Biden or Trump are saying they support Biden more now in polls. And that could be a really interesting effect going forward. It's something to watch. You know, it it strikes me that in a novel way or unprecedented way, I mean, there aren't going to be any other issues that can move the needle in this election. It's hard to imagine anything that would would break through past the COVID. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, I mean, it's 2020, man. It's right. been a crazy year. I mean, I yeah, but I I your point is taken. I mean, what what will overtake this? Um, and turn attention elsewhere. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. I mean, I could see uh, stories that break that reinforce the respective bases of each 
candidate and party, but beyond that, you know, energizing people one way or the other on on issues like developments in, the, you know, the Michael Flynn case, which seems, you know, to, to be quite a lightning rod at the moment. I mean, that's just going to energize both sides, each side respectively. But, you know, breaking through to, to undecided voters, it's it's hard to imagine it. I mean, we're talking matters of a life and death and right. putting food on the table. I mean, it's, it is prime. It is primal. And it's hard to think that much else will. You, you don't think the unmasked uh, Susan Rice's role <laughs> in the unmasking of, uh, <laughs> of Mike Flynn is going to uh, Trump uh, is going to Trump it's, it's life and make death. or break issue that is, right. for Isakoff and me. That is life and death. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, so right. We... Yes. The swing voters in Macomb County, uh, Michigan are, are going to make their decision well, well, based on that. And I was going to bring up Michigan because obviously, you know, Michigan is going to be a key battleground in this election. Uh, and the president went there this past week, went to the Ford plant, uh, did not wear a mask um, in front of anybody, but apparently behind the scenes did. And the president was tweeting about Michigan threatening to withhold federal funds because he didn't like the fact that uh, they were you know, going to absentee balloting um, uh, in, in Michigan. So what do you think's going on in, in Michigan? And give, give us your sense of what uh, Trump is trying to do there and whether it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, Trump is trying to stay above water in Michigan. I didn't mean that as a flood pun. Um, it's, it comes well, across as insensitive. But, but, but really, you know, every poll we've seen recently has shown Biden ahead by anywhere from about four points to eight percentage points. Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor there, has high approval ratings for her handling of the pandemic, despite the fact that there have been some, you know, very visible protests. So, you know, it, it strikes me as the, the vote by mail controversy and Trump threatening to withhold funding because of it strikes me as a pretty desperate move because you're essentially just trying to sort of restrict the voting pool. You know, Trump has said out loud the quiet part, which is that he fears that if states transition to sort of vote by mail and more accessible ways to vote, that that Republicans will lose. Um, that's something Republicans, you know, never really say. They they always say it's about voter fraud. By the way, it's a little tone deaf to tweet that you're going to withhold federal funds when you know thousands of people are being re uh, evacuated because of massive flooding. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's good. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's good politics. Uh, I don't even think Republicans trying to restrict vote by mail is good politics because. You know, it's been it's in a bunch of states now. I think there's, uh, you know, 30 something states or something like that. A lot of these states that are moving towards vote by mail in the sort of midst of the pandemic are controlled by Republicans and won by Trump in 2016. There is no clear evidence that it disadvantages Republicans in any way. Georgia, Iowa, Nebraska, West Virginia, they're all moving in this direction. So I, it just seems like a, a losing battle. I was going to say, does mail in voting really help Democrats over Republicans? I, I'm not sure it does. If anything, it would strike me that fewer you'll get fewer people voting if it's mail in than than not. But, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and I and I would I would say from my own 
experience, I am much less inclined to send a letter than, say, my parents are. So I think, you know, older voters are, are like more comfortable with the postal system um, and that whole process. It takes some foresight to apply for a mail-in vote and do that whole thing. I've done it here in California. Anyway, the data does not show that it benefits Republicans right. despite, uh, or that it benefits Democrats. One last question, Andrew, as long as we're on Michigan, obviously Whitmer, the governor, uh, it would seem like a prime candidate for the Biden vice presidential pick in some ways, you know, when you look at entire map, it would make the most sense of all if you can nail down Michigan, a state that uh, Trump took in 2016, you've gone a long way to winning the electoral college. What's your sense uh, right now? Is, is, is Whitmer the most likely vice presidential pick, if for no other reason than that? Well, Michigan was the close, I think it was the closest state. Less than 11,000 votes, yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy. So yeah, I mean, they, they it's been reported. I think she said that they've had open opening conversation or something like that. I'm sure she's being vetted, as are sort of other similar picks. Obviously, Biden has restricted his list to just women. Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, another pick sort of similar in the sense that that there's a hope that she could deliver that sort of must-win state to Biden. You know, who knows at this point? You know, he's certainly considering that kind of electoral college play when he's looking at this, and he has some some sort of promising candidates in, in both Whitmer and Baldwin and a few others, although well, a lot of a, a, Harris and Elizabeth a lot, Warren. So well, we'll a lot, but also a lot of buzz this week about Klobuchar. And apparently the campaign has asked her if they could vet her. I doubt that she's going to demure. And uh, what I keep hearing from uh, people who are familiar with the process is that for Biden, this really is about you know, kind of who he is going to be comfortable with. Um, and, and and he likes Klobuchar a lot. I mean, that maybe I think that's true of Whitmer as well, but he knows Klobuchar well, so we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to have those feeling you out sort of sessions. I mean, you got, you got to do it on Zoom, I suppose. It's who you feel comfortable with on Zoom, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess you know, so. you don't get to they don't go they don't go go down to the mansion in Delaware and, and yeah. hang out the way, the way it might have in previous elections. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I will uh, point out for the record that both Klobuchar and Whitmer have been skullduggery guests. So um, I'm sure that will go into the mix and they'll and they'll be listening. The Biden folks will be listening to what they had to say on our podcast as they go through the vetting process. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're such good vetters that they'll actually listen to skullduggery. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, anyway, Andrew, uh, thanks as always. And we will be following. Uh, are these polls going to be like every week now, every Friday? They are pretty much every they're every sort of seven to ten days at this point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much. We now have with us Beth Cameron, the former head of the White House Pandemic Office, the same pandemic office within the National Security Council that was shut down in 2018. And a lot of people have uh, looked back on that decision 
in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis and wondered why it happened and what impact that had. We want to ask you about that and a lot of other things. Beth Cameron, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So you uh, created a lot of buzz very early on in this crisis when you wrote your piece in the Washington Post. I ran the White House pandemic office. Trump closed it making the point that the federal government is moving too slowly due to a lack of leadership. Now, I know you were you were not there in 2018 when then National Security Advisor John Bolton made the decision to shut down the office. You had headed it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You then stayed on during the transition and during the first few months of the Trump administration. As best you can make out right now, why did John Bolton shut down your old office and what impact did that have? I think the main reason that the office was closed was likely, and again, I wasn't in the office when it happened, but I think that the main reason was in order to shrink the level of government within the White House and also just to generally streamline the number of people in the National Security Council staff. And I think obviously it's every national security advisor and president's decision about how they want to shape the NSC. But unfortunately, what it did, in my opinion, is it made the White House less prepared to react quickly for an emerging outbreak like COVID-19 that turned into a pandemic. Creating the office was really a lesson that came out of the Ebola epidemic in 2014, where we really we realized that you know the world in general was slow to realize how important that outbreak was because it was happening in a part of the world that didn't normally see Ebola. And if you want to move quickly with an epidemic or a pandemic, you need to look not only at what's happening, you need to be able to anticipate and really get ahead by asking questions like, is this outbreak happening in a place that it doesn't normally happen? Are there unusual characteristics? Is this a potentially pandemic pathogen? Is the country preparing for people to come to already be here with this disease if it's happening in a place like China that's intensely connected with the United States by air travel? So all of these types of questions and being able to only have a senior team that is focused full time on pandemics, um, those are the reasons why we created the office. And I do think that we lost time by not having that office in place in early 2020. So let me just uh, press on that that issue, not being able to respond quite as swiftly. And I think you referred to your role in leading that office as a kind of a smoke detector for the administration, for the government. What kinds of things would the government have been able to get in place faster had that office been there and someone like yourself uh, leading it? So the office had really two key roles. One was the smoke detector role that you outlined, which is being, you know, working with the other federal, the rest of the federal government, the departments and agencies to think about what's what might be coming and to be prepared for that. And the second role was really to be able to respond effectively. And so in both of those areas, I think that the office would have been helpful in early 2020. In particular, I'm fairly certain that we would have been asking a lot of questions about preparedness for testing. We knew, I think it was it's fair to say that once the world knew that there was a potentially pandemic pathogen with clusters in humans, and certainly once we knew that it was sustainably transmitted between people, we knew that the disease was already here. And border closures, absolutely, there's been a lot of discussion about the border closures that were put in place and how they bought 
time for some countries around the world. But we should have also known at that point that a really robust public health response to start tracking down where the cases were across the United States, isolating those cases, tracking contacts, all the things we're talking about now, we really should have been talking about in January. And I believe that the office would have been convening not only to inform the high-level officials, but really importantly, to be talking to the working-level officials to think through where are we going to have points of failure with responding to this pandemic, and how do we start plugging those gaps now? What are we going to run out of? Where are there going to be shortages? How are we going to help the states identify the caseload before we get to the point where we just can't track it down, which ultimately in March is where we where we ended up? One quick follow-up question, Ed, because I just I, I know that the defenders of the Trump administration, they push back. They say uh, that this was not so much a pushing out people out of the White House who had this role, but it was a reorganization. They folded it into a larger office. There were still experts there. There were still pandemic preparedness people there. But this is maybe a little bit processy and bureaucratic, but explain, in your view, why it was so important to have a, a distinct office that played this role. Having a distinct office allowed for the person who ran that office and their whole team to be focused on only one issue— emerging outbreaks, epidemics and pandemics, both preparedness for the next one and response to one that's already here. And I think it's best the best way to illustrate why that's important is with an example. So when I was the senior director, I sat in, um, I was part of the National Security Advisors regular meetings. And those meetings, generally, you go around the table and you ask each senior director, what's going on? What do I need to know? And when I was sitting in those meetings, I only had one thing to brief on biological threats, whatever they were anywhere in the world and what we were doing to prepare at home globally for them. Once you fold that office under another function, you're making a decision about what else you're going to brief on, whether it's nuclear security, North Korea, Iran, all the other things in the WMD office that are really important. And so what that means is that you're diluting the amount of times that senior leadership is hearing about biological threats and you're diluting the ability of the people who are briefing up to prepare, to to basically brief about problems that you might anticipate. So to shorthand, a senior level team that's only focused on one issue has more airtime and they also have more clout. Did you have plans in place for imposing social distancing restrictions in the event of a pandemic? How extensive were those plans? And the one reason I'm asking is there was a study this week that suggested that tens of thousands of lives could have been saved had the social distancing restrictions been imposed just a week earlier. I have a lot of questions about how they arrived at that, but I just want to get some idea of how far advanced and specific were your plans for doing that? And did you have particular triggers as to when social distancing restrictions and quarantines should go in place? So for my part, you know, I one of the things that we did at the end of the Obama administration is we put together this playbook that's also been discussed a lot, which is not a plan. It's not an operational plan. It was intended to be a decision-making tool for White House officials to ask questions. And within that playbook, there are questions about when you would impose social distancing, when you would look at school closings in the part of the plan when you start to get from yellow into the red zone where you know that you might have to start doing that. So 
in summary, it, within pandemic preparedness planning across the last two administrations, Bush and Obama, so not political at all, um, there's a lot of discussion about social distancing and when to put it into place. So yes, there were plans for social distancing. Were there plans that are specific to the situation that we find ourselves in now? How would we have implemented those plans? That's always a question for what would have, what I would have done if I'd been sitting in that in that seat. What I w- definitely would have done is been asking those questions earlier. I just had a follow-up on this, though, because the conundrum here is if you're going to take the drastic step of telling people to stay at home, forcing them not to go to work, businesses have to shut down, restaurants have to shut down, you got to have public support for that. And, you know, when I look at the numbers on the number of people who were infected in early March, still in the hundreds, the number of deaths, uh, even less than that, obviously, uh, you know, on March 6, there were only nine, uh, 15 deaths nationwide from COVID. A week later, it had gone to, to 38, but that's nationally. I'm hard pressed to see how you could have gotten public support for the kind of drastic shutdown of the economy and self-quarantining that we've had over the last two months when the numbers would have been that low. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really important question. So I think ideally what you want to do is contain the disease so that you don't have to go into the kind of lockdowns that we're seeing now across the country and and around the world. And we weren't able to test enough people to understand where the disease actually was. And that led to spikes in cases, which then ultimately made it palatable um, to, um, to explain to the American people why we had to go into social distancing. Problem with public health is that if you're, I mean, to quote Tony Fauci, if you're not overreacting, you're not really doing what you need to do. And so you need to be able to anticipate in the future what could happen, what are we not prepared for. And in this case, in February, we weren't doing enough testing in order to get to the point where in March we knew where the chains of transmission were. So Ideally, you want to be explaining to the American people starting as early as possible exactly what's happening, what you know, and really importantly, what you don't know, so that they're prepared when you get to the point where you really do need to impose social distancing measures and you need to explain why. So it's not an easy decision to take. But the reason we had to take it is because we didn't know where the cases were because we weren't doing enough testing and we didn't have contact tracing surge to the extent that we needed it to find the cases um, and be able to, um, to, to contain the disease. Beth, I want to get back to some of these issues because you're raising some important points here. But before we do, I am curious, you were there through the transition and then in, into the first year of the Trump administration. Were you, did you brief the incoming Trump administration and did you take, did you participate in the uh, tabletop exercise uh, that, uh, that was part of that transition process on pandemics? I did brief the incoming administration, uh, both the Homeland Security Advisor, the National Security Advisor, both of them uh, during my tenure, Michael Flynn and H.R. McMaster, as well as the Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert. I also did participate as an observer in the tabletop exercise that was conducted by the Obama administration as part of the transition to President Trump. And the purpose of that transition planning was to leave um, the new administration as prepared as possible for all of the things that were keeping the Obama administration up at night. 
to include explicitly pandemic threats, to think through uh, where we needed to, to be prepared for something that might emerge quickly and where a, a really swift response would be necessary. And did you have any sense at all that the uh, incoming uh, Trump administration was was not uh, taking these issues seriously? I mean, uh, did they seem focused and kind of recognizing the potential threats here? So the incoming Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert, had worked in the Bush administration, and he um, was part of pandemic planning under President Bush and really understood the value of planning for a pandemic and still does. And you you know reference um, all that he's been saying that's been very helpful during the COVID-19 pandemic. So on this issue, between the people who had worked on it over a long period of time in both administrations, there was actually quite a lot of synergy about why this issue was important. And so as I transitioned into the Trump administration, because we had an office, frankly, and I was able to send direct memos to him and to the national security advisor, I was able to keep this issue on the radar screen. We were able to keep it on the radar screen. And that was part of the point of having um, a specific office so it could be maintained as a focal point. I didn't brief the president during that period of time, nor did I brief any of the other cabinet members directly. But the National Security Council um, did maintain a focus on it until May of 2018. You've identified testing as being sort of the key failing here, the inability to have tests up in February when we knew that the uh, disease was coming to this country. Now, of course, the explanation for that is that it was the CDC that screwed up here, that they had a test that didn't work, that got sent out, they, you know, they had to redo it, which raises a question about, you know, how closely when you were in office, you had specific plans for testing in circumstances like this. And what do you make of the CDC's bungling in those early weeks? So I think the CDC, the lack of ability to get a test conducted and out to the states early was a really important turning point in in the pandemic for the United States. Um, It was critical that we have tests so that we could find and stop the chains of transmission. And I wouldn't actually place this failure only at the feet of the CDC. The CDC's job was to develop a test, but it was leadership's job, including in the Department of Health and Human Services more broadly and at the White House, to have a backup plan. So I would say that the key failing here, in addition to the fact that we didn't have a test as quickly as we normally do, was that we didn't have a backup plan in buying tests from the WHO or working quickly with FDA and with clinical labs. Did you, excuse me, Beth, did you have a backup plan in your playbook? We have a question in the playbook that says, do we have sufficient diagnostic testing? We would have been all over asking that question. Do we have diagnostic tests? And we were during Ebola and Zika. Absolutely. And let me ask you on the, the backup plan, because I remember one, wondering and, and it never really getting a satisfactory answer. Many other countries were willing to accept the WHO developed tests developed by scientists in, in Germany and the CDC said no, not up to our standards or didn't meet you know, certain regulatory hurdles, whatever the reasons were. What do you think, uh, was, that, was that a mistake, not to just simply accept this, the uh, WHO developed tests? 
I do think that it was a mistake to not, in addition to developing our own test, accept the WHO test, especially when it became apparent that our test wasn't going to be as quick as we thought that it would because we had problems creating a test that could be um, mm -hmm. could be used in the States. Mm -hmm. So definitely, and I think in retrospect, one of the you know large uh, problems that we had was in not having multiple plans for getting testing out to the states as quickly as possible, recognizing that finding and stopping the cases was the most important thing that we could do to mitigate and, well, really to contain the disease so that we weren't in mitigation mode only and then ultimately in shutdown. So if you were in your old job in February of this year as this crisis was developing, what specifically would you have been doing that wasn't done? I realize asking questions, sure, a lot, of, a lot of us have been asking questions, but what specific steps do you believe you would have taken if you were still there? Yeah, so I'll say I'll say what I would have done, but but just to be really clear, it would have been with leadership um, asking these questions too. So it's actually that's really a lot of the job of somebody in the National Security Council is to ask questions. Ultimately, we don't run programs, we don't run operational plans. That's not the job. The job is to convene the departments and agencies to ask what's going on, what's the plan, are we implementing the plans in place that we have? And what are the failures that we're, we could encounter and how do we get ahead of those yeah. so we don't actually encounter them? So what would I have been doing? What would Susan Rice have been doing? What would Lisa Monaco have been doing? And honestly, what would Tom Bossert have been doing? We would have been convening at the highest levels of government to ask, how are we doing on a diagnostic test? And why is it not here yet? And if it's not going to be here yet in a sufficient period of time um, to do what needs to be done, what's the backup plan? And aren't we buying tests? Can't we get the WHO test? Can't we work with hospital and clinical labs? What are the barriers? That's really our job is to ask those questions. And that's what Ron Klain did during Ebola as the Ebola response coordinator. He was looking 10 steps down the field and asking where might we not be able to get where we need to go and how can we make sure we do it sooner? And I'm not sure that was happening in February, although I wasn't in the White House, so I can't be certain. Basically, what you would have been doing and what your office uh, uh, and the NSC would have been doing is rattling the cages, right? Um, I've got a question about the CDC and about, uh, you know, it seems to me, and you're hearing people actually uh, inside the C CDC saying this anonymously, that they're being, they're being muzzled. And, you know, it goes back to Nancy Messonnier, a top CDC official at the very beginning, you know, saying our lives are going to be disrupted by this, which seems like the mildest thing you could possibly say. And the president being very angry about that and angry about what impact that was going to have on the stock market and essentially muzzling uh, the CDC. Then you have, you know, the CDC guidelines, which they blocked. Then finally, when they were let out, watered down. How concerned are you about that, that our, that our most senior public health officials and public health institutions are not able to communicate clearly, directly, and, and completely frankly with the American people at a moment like this? I'm frankly scared that our CDC is not out in front talking about this. I mean, look, CDC is the gold standard for public health for the world. They, most CDCs around the world are named after CDC. What we, what the CDC of the United States of America does is they develop public health standards. They work with the WHO to develop public health standards. They train public health experts all over the world. 
And when CDC is not out in front, it's really hard to be sure exactly what the science is and where the facts are. Now, having Tony Fauci out in front is fantastic. Having Deborah Burks out in front is also fantastic. We have two strong public health experts, but the CDC is our gold standard for public health. And we're in the middle of a one of the largest public health crises we've ever faced, um, certainly in my lifetime, and they're not at the table. They're not out in front. And I think we're really suffering from that right now. Beth, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about where we are today. Um, we have this ongoing and increasing, increasingly robust debate about uh, easing restrictions and uh, uh, getting the economy back and yet still outstanding concerns. We're about to pass a, a milestone next week of 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. But today in the Washington Post, uh, Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services has an op-ed headline of which is we have to reopen for health reasons. And he writes, I want to read you a couple of lines and get your reaction. The economic crisis brought on by the virus is a silent killer. Estimates suggest that each one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate translates into a one percent increase in suicide deaths and a more than three percent increase in opioid deaths, which means this virus induced recession will likely cause tens of thousands of excess deaths. We cannot allow the virus to impose intolerable costs in terms of drugs, suicide and alcohol deaths, foregone health care and more lost jobs. What's your reaction? Secretary Azar is right that we are facing increased public health challenges in addition to the challenges caused by the virus by sitting here at home, mental health um, he's right about suicide. He's right about elective surgeries that are being delayed. But what I don't agree with is that this is a fundamental choice between reopening and the economy and all of the other health needs that we have. The way in which we get back to health, all of all of the functions of health that we need in order to um, in order to sustain society um, in a healthy manner, is to be able to reopen while keeping this virus at bay. Because if we reopen and we don't keep the virus at bay, we're gonna overwhelm the hospital system again. We're gonna be right back where we are now in social extreme social distancing um, in our homes. And all of the factors that he rightly mentions are gonna be increased and, and it will be at greater risk for them. So I don't think this should be framed as an either or. I also don't think it should be framed as open or closed. What we wanna do is expand so that we have more social contact with people over a period of time consistent with building our public health response. And unfortunately, right now, we still don't have decreasing case counts for over 14 days in a number of, of states around the country. We still don't have sufficient contact tracing workforce to isolate and contain the disease um, around the country. And we still don't have sufficient testing in many states around the country. And until we do, we now have about 20,000 new cases of this virus every day, and they're still out there. So if we reopen swiftly and go back to a normal or even a new normal too fast, we're not going to be able to sustain that, and we're going to see spikes that will put us right back where we are. So it's not an either or, and I disagree with him on that. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a... Um 
you know, like a, a local official, a, a mayor, a, a county executive. I, I'm thinking about this because I was just seeing reporting on a kind of a standoff in Broward County between the county officials and, and the mayor of Fort Lauderdale about whether uh, gymnasiums should be able to open up. And at first the mayor said they can open up. Then the county said no. And then, you know, it just went back and forth. Of course, the poor owner of the gym was caught in the middle. But it just struck me that with a, a disease, there's so much uncertainty. Still, there's uncertainty about how it spreads. There's uh, uncertainty about how it'll be affected by weather. I mean, there's so much that we still don't know. How do you exercise leadership and make these kinds of uh, decisions that, that have real consequences when you n- still know so little about the disease? Yeah, I really feel for local leaders during this. And it's a place that our organization, NTI, has been really focused is trying to provide decision-making tools to local local leaders uh, because they're faced with having to be decisive in a situation where the information is just completely unclear and where we don't have um, scientific evidence for a lot of decisions that where we'd like to have scientific evidence. So first, I think local leaders have the hardest decisions to make during this crisis. But second, I think what what needs to happen, honestly, and it needs to happen at the federal level as well as at the state and local level, is really honest, constant, transparent, fact-based communication where people know exactly what we know and what we don't know. And also, as we learn more and things change, just being really honest and saying, look, here's what we thought, here's what we know now, and here's you know what we're going to try to do in order to mitigate this crisis, knowing what we know at the moment, but we have to act with the best interest of of people based on what we know now. So one of the things I think that would be really incredibly useful, and some states have started putting this into place, is having a a public-facing decision tool to show the general public, like, how are we making these decisions about moving from phase one to phase two to phase three or between stages of reopening? How are we deciding? whether to reopen gyms versus hair salons versus national and public parks. And to really explain, this is the public health capability we need to have in place, we think, to control spread of the disease so that we can reopen some of these things. And if we reopen them, here's what we're going to put in place so that we can mitigate against disease spread. And to really have that honest conversation, our organization working with colleagues at Georgetown and Center for Global Development released a scorecard. What we did is we gave them the ability to do it themselves, which I think is actually honestly better so that every local leader can look across the metrics and be able to choose where are we and what data do I need to move to the next phase and actually to show it to people, you know, to the public, to their constituents and say, here's the things I'm tracking until we hit these marks. I'm not going to reopen gyms, for example. And here's why. Beth, it sort of strikes me that at the end of the day, if these decisions are going to be made at the state and local level, these very tough choices about what's an acceptable level of deaths in the community, an acceptable level of numbers of cases out there, somebody's going to have to be making decisions along those lines. And I'm hard pressed to understand at what point a public health expert like yourself would say, yes, mayor, yes, governor, it's okay to reopen gyms, it's okay to reopen restaurants, when clearly there are still going to be cases out there, no matter how much the numbers come down. 
Yeah, so I think we're going to have this pandemic with us for a long time until we have an equitably distributed vaccine across the country and around the world. So we're in it for months to more than a year to two years, depending on how things pan out with vaccine development and therapeutic development. And so what that means is that we we are going to have to find ways to expand social contact and we're going to have to do it commensurate with increased public health. And so look, we know that the way that we expand from social distancing is that we need to be able to have enough testing and contact tracing in place to find cases, isolate the people that have the disease, have isolation capability for them, find their contacts, test them, et cetera, et cetera. We know that that's what we need. And until we have that capability in place, until we have enough disease surveillance that also gets at at-risk communities and underserved communities, if we reopen, we'll see a spike in cases. So we have to do the public health capability in order to have a low number of deaths and a low amount of spread of the disease. Are we going to still have cases? Yeah, we're still going to have cases, but we're not going to have spikes that, that cause large numbers of deaths and overwhelm our hospitals. What, what's low enough to avoid spikes? We want You want to be able to isolate this disease like we have outbreaks around the country. We want to see it as an as outbreaks around the country and not a pandemic that is affecting people where we can't figure out where the cases actually are. So once you know where the outbreak is actually occurring, you can find it, stop it, mitigate against it, and change the conditions that caused it to, to occur and to spread quickly. So what you want to see is sustained decrease that each person is not tra- not able to transmit it to one other person. And until we get to that point, we're going to have widespread disease transmission. Beth, how confident are you that we'll have a vaccine in the next year or, say, 18 months? And secondly, even if we do have a vaccine, do you think we'll have the production capacity in this country to, de- to develop the hundreds of millions of doses that we are likely to need? The answer to both of those questions is I hope so, but I can't be confident until there's more data about the vaccines that are under development right now. There have been some hopeful studies um, over the last couple of weeks that show that people can produce antibodies to some of the vaccines under development and that monkeys can clear infection um, once they've been vaccinated. So these are good, hopeful signs. There's a lot of great work going on all over the world. But I, as a, I am not a, a vaccine development expert. And what I know is that um, betting on any specific vaccine until you've gone through the clinical trials required to, to test it out is really a challenging business. So I'm hopeful, but I'm definitely not confident because I don't have any data on which to be that confident at the moment. So do you think the American people have to prepare themselves for at least the possibility that it, it may be two years, two and a half years, even three years? I think the American people need to prepare themselves for the possibility that it could be, you know, longer than a year for Mm -hmm. sure. And that we don't actually know enough about this brand new disease that we've only had with us for the last several months to be confident that we can stop the disease in our country or anywhere around the world um, in, a, in a short period of time. That means, though, that we, we should, though, be preparing for vaccinating 7 billion people on the planet, because I hope that we'll have a vaccine um, in a shorter period of time than that. And if we do, we then have to get it to everyone. And we have to get it to everyone because we can't stop it 
here until we stop it everywhere and because it's the right thing to do. Well, on that uh, sobering note, uh, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your insights. And uh, if this is really going to be as around as long as you are suggesting, we're definitely going to want to have you back. So <laughs> thanks for uh, joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks to former head of the White House Pandemic Office, Beth Cameron, and Yahoo News national political correspondent, Andrew Romano, for joining us on Skullduggery. And don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.